0: Father, we fear sometimes that our faith may fail. But we know the, the truth of those words that we just sung that you will hold us fast, God. Uh, we recognize there's been so much that we haven't understood in the last few weeks. There's uh, fear for those that we love, there's impatience for things that have not changed. Uh, Some of us have lost what was normal and forced to change when we really didn't want to. And in those times like now, the things that we experience, it's such a comfort and assurance to know that you are strong. God, you are not dependent like we are. You're not prone to illness or weakness and trials and uncertainty like we are. In times like this, it's a comfort for us to remember that you know our frame, that you remember that we are only dust. And yet we can come and we can trust in you. And so we come before your throne this morning with boldness and ask for you to be faithful to your word. God, we do pray for uh, the world. We pray for the countries that are suffering most, Italy and Spain, with the tremendous amounts of death. Thousands of souls have ended their time on earth, and Father, we grieve with them. And we ask that you would bring relief for those suffering from the effects of the virus throughout the world. That you would be glorified in drawing people to yourself. And that your word would be preached in the midst of sickness and fear. God, you tell us also to pray for those in authority. And so we pray for our president and our vice president, and all the officials. God, we pray specifically for our governor, Jay Inslee. We thank you for him. We pray that you would give them all wisdom and patience. May they be led by your spirit more than their flesh. May they display the type of love that we will see this morning in 1 Corinthians 13. God, we also pray for the CDC as they serve our people in the U.S. Give wisdom and understanding for those that are monitoring this situation. Father, it's overwhelming to consider all of the decisions that our leaders have to make on a moment-by-moment basis. And so we ask for grace for them. Give them courage. Give them strength and protection. We thank you for a government that seeks to serve people instead of abusing them. God, I also thank you for other local churches in our area that are displaced. Churches that love you. This morning we pray for Redemption Bible Church. God, will you give them a special grace as a church family that's now scattered. Give them wisdom and to the leadership of elders to navigate this Strange and difficult time. Give them peace and endurance. We Pray for Pastor Ryan as he shepherds his church from afar. God, we recognize this morning also that you've been so faithful to our church family. We ask that you would help our church to not fear or worry, but to trust you in all things. Guard our hearts from disunity and don't allow the evil one to tempt us toward bitterness or judgmentalism or even division during this time. Help us to not be consumed with news or entertainment, but to soak ourselves in your word. Father, we do pray for Jan Swanson's father who's recovering from a fall. Give him healing and strength. We pray for those in our church family that that need to stay indoors and quarantine for their health. May you give them encouragement. Help us as a church family to reach out to them on the phone this week. We pray for those in our church that work in the medical field or in law enforcement. God, we ask that you would protect them. Give them peace each day and every shift to trust in you. Help their spouses and their families to release them each day, that they would trust in you also. God, I ask that you would give them special grace during this time. And we ask, God, last, that you would stir our hearts to hope in the return of your Son and the new heavens and new earth where sickness will be no more. And we pray for all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in our series through uh, the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, this morning, we're in um, 1 Corinthians 13. So I was stirred to remember um, a number of months ago, across uh, sitting in a booth across me from a brother who has been an enrichment to my life for years. And he's a brother that will speak boldly with me, and yet with patience and grace and he's thoughtful and careful of his words. And now that afternoon, as we, we sat and, and had lunch together, he encouraged me, he strengthened me, and more significantly, he challenged me, all of which I needed that day. But the, the challenge stuck with me. He said, um, and, and this is my own words, don't strive to give our church family obedience options that are divorced from the gospel. Don't, don't give us a, a list of to-dos that, that seem easy, but it's separated from grace because it'll eventually be a burden. A checklist is, is not the Christian life. And so I share this this morning because I recognize that starting a series in the Fruit of the Spirit could possibly lead myself and, and, our, and our church family to believe that they need to perform to be accepted by God. We, we could walk away thinking that if I show love, if I'm peaceable, when I'm joyful, then I'm accepted by God in my words even, could possibly lead you to believe that God, all he wants for you is to hop onto this Christian performance treadmill and then forget about grace. And I don't want that. Not only is that unhealthy, it's robbing glory from God and placing an undue burden on people that they're unable to bear. And so I want to say very clearly this morning, Christian, you and I are accepted and loved by God simply through the merits of Jesus Christ, period, full stop. Nothing more, nothing less. You are blessed today, Christian, because of Jesus. Nothing you and I could ever do will cause God to love us any more or any less. God loves you strictly by his grace given through Jesus Christ. This is what it means to remember the gospel. This is what it means to live in the gospel, to be saturated in the gospel. Now this might make you scared. Does it make you scared to hear that there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less? And do you think that now well now I have the pressure gone and I, and, and my effort doesn't mean anything so and I'm going to get blessed no matter what so I can go ahead and sin all the more and I can live any way I want. You know the Bible talks about that too. It speaks in Jude 4 of ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They pervert, they abuse the grace of God and continue to sin, denying God. And then anticipating the same question, Paul writes to the Romans, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Absolutely not. Just because some abuse God's grace to indulge in sinful behavior doesn't mean we all shouldn't live by his grace alone. In fact, Paul uses the entire chapter of Romans 6 to answer this question. He knew that his teaching could be misre- misrepresented and encouraged then people to sin or, or to to live however they wanted. But for those that understand the grace of God and have experienced it, we know this isn't at all what Paul was teaching. The grace of salvation is the same grace by which we live the Christian life. Paul says in Romans 5 two. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We are not only justified by grace through faith, we stand, friends, every day in that same grace. And so the solution for the Christian is not to add legalism to grace. We shouldn't act add work to our spiritual lives, thinking that we'll earn enough favor with God for him to be pleased with us. No, the solution is to be so gripped by the magnificence and boundless generosity of God's grace that we respond out of gratitude rather than a sense of duty. My wife doesn't melt when I say, I love you because it's my duty. She doesn't think, oh, wow, Jeff, it's it's your duty. Thank you. No, it's when I'm astounded by her and the incredible gift that she is in my life and I respond in love. I don't love her out of duty alone, but out of gratitude and appreciation for God. And so we shouldn't love others out of a sense of obligation, but rather from an overwhelming gratitude of worship towards God because of the gift of his son. We serve others not to get something, but because we're so overflowing of love and adoration of our Savior that we cannot help serve others lovingly. And maybe, maybe we've bogged down the gospel with lots of have-tos. I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to think this way, I have to be more committed, I have to be more disciplined, I have to be more obedient. And when we think this way, when we're overwhelmed with this thought, When we talk this way, we are substituting duty and obligation for a loving response to God's grace. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't obey God and submit to the Bible's teaching. But what I am saying is that our motivation should be to honor and glorify God always in all things. I'm committed to serving at church. I'm committed to reading my Bible every morning. I'm committed to praying for you, my friends. I'm committed to my wife until death do us part. But I'm committed in these areas out of a loving and grateful response to God's grace, and not so that I can earn blessings in my life. Grace is for the Christian for all of their life, not just to get us into heaven. If we're not careful, we will begin to preach grace for the non-Christian and duty to the christian and the same grace that brought you to salvation is the same grace that brings you through the christian life and we can't forget this our, our good works are not only truly are not truly good works unless they're motivated by a love for god and desire to glorify him so living under the grace of god instead of living under a sense of duty frees us from such self-serving motivation in our lives It it frees us to obey God and serve Him as a loving and thankful response to Him for our salvation and for the blessings already guaranteed to us by His grace. So as we walk through each of these these fruit in the coming weeks, Lord willing, I I don't want you to get bogged down with a to-do list. I want you rather to be gripped with the grace of God that He has for us in each one of these steps. So this in mind, I want to look at the passage And I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to look at just a few verses in the middle part of this section, the first seven verses, actually. And as I said uh, last week, we're going to to look at the fruit is, look at the counterfeit of the fruit and the the fake fruit and then application there. But the, the fruit we're looking at this morning is love. And Paul uses the word agape here for the love in this passage. This is the New Testament word for love. It it has a meaning all on its own. This this word is used of God's love for his son, his his love for the human race, and his love for his very own. And this love is completely and perfectly shown to us through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he had loved us. See, this love does not come about because of feelings, but but it is commanded, as Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And if we look at John 3:16, we can see the significance and the cost of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God gave us Jesus. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We see the significance of love when we look at the cross and we see what Christ has done for us. Love is important. That's why Paul devotes an entire chapter here in 1 Corinthians. And this is why he begins the, the list of the fruit in Galatians. Now, can you imagine what Paul was like? A stout, uh, gruff man that we understand who preached boldly to the Corinthians just a few chapters earlier. And now he's elaborating on love. For me, when I think of Paul, I think of Gimli from the Lord of the Rings. That's how I picture my mind, this dwarf from the Lord of the Rings. Rough exterior, experienced so many hardships. And yet what we find in this chapter is is a soft soul because of what God had done in his life. See, love was not an idea for Paul. It's not even a motivating factor for his behavior. It is his behavior. To love is to act. Anything short of action is not love at all. And so why does Paul introduce love into this letter to the Corinthian church? It wasn't so that pastors could have a passage to preach at weddings. That's not the context here. It was because love was lacking in this church. In chapter 12, in verse 27 through 31, gives us some insight. He says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So he's spending the majority of chapter 12 talking about the use of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. And he goes into great detail, giving a word picture of of a body with many parts, a head, a foot, an arm, all necessary for a body to function. But The Corinthian church is a shining example of the human race. We've we've all been given so much, and yet we desire more. We desire preeminence. We we are so self-focused. If, if the, this quarantine and lockdown has taught us anything about ourselves, then maybe God has giving us exactly what we've been wanting. We've prioritized individualism over community. We've prioritized materialism over relational. We, 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 the world wants virtual over physical. And guess what? You have it. More than we can bear. More than we can imagine. This, the world has been chanting the virtue of self-expression. And so let's be honest, several days now into a lockdown, is self-expression still the highest good? Do the people we, we live with, long that we express ourselves more and, and forced to spend so much time with our actual self, are we so confident now in our essential goodness? Are, are we just stoked to have more undistracted time with ourselves? Or might we find ourselves beginning to wear out? Maybe you think only about you isn't the answer we thought it was. Maybe you only need to worry and consume yourself with yourself isn't truly what we were made for. Maybe what we need most isn't some time by ourselves to only think about ourselves. Maybe the answer is that we learn how to love the way that God loves. Maybe we were truly made to live with other people in community. Has that dawned on you this week? See, the Corinthians were doing just that, focused on themselves and not others. They wanted to be enamored with themselves. They wanted what they wanted. They wanted their needs fulfilled. And so Paul turns the the corner here in chapter 13 to talk about love for the Christian. He says in verse 1, If I speak in tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body, be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So what is Paul saying? I can't dive into all this this morning, but right off the bat there in verse 1, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, it's referring to the worship of various temples in the Greco-Roman cities. And in, in Corinth, they had a variety of gods. They had their pagan temples, and, and the way that worship was done was that there was this processional in which there was gongs and cymbals, a parade. And the purpose of it was to walk the streets banging their cymbals and gongs to get their God's attention. Look at me, look at my life, look at what I'm doing, take notice, please listen. And they were trying to earn their worth. They wanted recognition for what they were doing. And it's possible to do Christian ministry and practice Christian ethics. to to try to earn recognition from God. You can do the Christian life trying to get God's approval. If you're doing it, if you're not doing it for God's sake, you're not loving him for himself, but you're loving him for your own self. You want something from God. So I ask, why did you log on to watch this morning? Was it out of love for your savior or out of guilt or fear? Why did you read your Bible this week? Guilt or pride? Why do you financially give to the church? Is it out of fear? See, I believe the opposite of love isn't hate. It's fear and pride. Let me give you an example that I learned this week from Tim Keller, a case study. He said, how do you teach our kids to be honest and not to lie? We we sometimes appeal to two things, fear and pride. With fear, we say things like, you're going to get caught. The teacher will catch you, or God sees you. And what we're doing, we're we're instilling in them a fear of people, fear of consequences. You you better not lie because it'll turn out badly for you. But the other way we teach is through pride. We appeal to pride when we say things like, do you know why you should tell the truth? Because you don't want to be like those awful people. Look at those liars. And if we catch some lying, we, we then shame them, perhaps even calling them a liar. And what we're essentially doing is trying to get our children to be truthful by disdaining a certain type of person. Both ways lack grace and love. Now let's pause and consider both fear and pride for a moment. What, what are they? They're self-centeredness. It's, it's a growing selfishness. It's teaching them to look down at certain people. It's teaching them to compare themselves with others instead to God. It's self-centeredness. It's dangerous. And if I'm honest this morning, I've been guilty of this as a parent. But when we consider how God treats us, we should change our thinking. God doesn't treat us with threats or guilt. He doesn't look to strike fear in our hearts for obedience. Instead, God is patient and kind. He's not arrogant or rude. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That God's love is the opposite of fear and pride. And so with that, I want to transition to this list here that Paul gives us in verses 4 through 7, because it's, it's a good list for us to consider. And, and I don't want you to look at these as, as test markers for salvation. Rather, let's look to grow in these areas as we follow Christ. T- to love well is to follow the example of love that we see in Jesus and so I want to look at these here, these remaining moments this morning, and, and, and see them as most perfectly displayed in our Lord. First, in verse 4, it says, love is patient. This literally means love takes a long time to get mad. Patience, though, is more than long-suffering. It's a self-restraint when faced with, with egging on. Love does not retaliate. Love is not in a hurry to punish. Love can endure when it's being challenged. Love can cope with being mistreated. Love is patient. Then he says love is kind. Patience will take anything from others. Kindness will give anything to others, even to its enemies. And for the Corinthian church, kindness meant giving up their selfish pursuit and prideful attitudes and looking to serve one another with loving kindness. And, And this kindness can break cycles of passion, of resentment and anger and violence and desire, retaliation. Friends, what would change in your house this week if kindness was displayed more often? What would change in your marriage if your first response to being hurt or neglected was kindness? What would happen in your friendships when you display kindness when the other person doesn't deserve it? Love is kind, he says. And perhaps God has allowed this quarantine simply because he wants you to be so close to those loved ones that are you're struggling to show kindness with. And what would change this week while you're stuck at home that you would do this? That you would be remembering love, remembering Jesus Christ and his kindness to us. The next one, love does not envy or boast. Envy and rivalry was an issue in the Corinthian church and it was primarily over the gifts to the church. There was division and fighting. But I also believe this carries into the world in which we live and work. See, the path for the Christian should look different than for others. We should not be hungry for our own name or rampant in our self-promotion. We don't need to broker our own future, friends. And rivalry is what happens when ambitions swell with envy. Someone else is enjoying what we want for ourselves, and so envy burns and it overshadows all the blessings that we have. So we don't have the position or finances or recognition or possessions or the gifting of another. And so we begin to begrudge them and then we charge God with being unfair. Friends, do you, do you want to be humble like Christ was humble? One way to display this is whether we can be zealous for someone else's idea or plan. Not just tolerate and accommodate the goals of those with us, but adopt their vision and promote and pursue their dreams our willingness to make others a success is a great measure of the purity of our goals and desires and so this question should ring in our minds and our hearts how best can i serve these people for whom christ died no matter my own desires love is not jealous my friends love is also not arrogant literally this means that love is not being a windbag do you know what that means a windbag is a person who talks at great length but shares nothing of real value. And that's an indictment, isn't it? Bragging is next, and the next natural step to jealousy. When we haven't received the acknowledgement that we think or that we deserve, we become a show-off and, and we tend to just talk. And God says in Proverbs 27, too, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. I heard of a story years ago of a preacher who found a shoebox in his closet. He opened it and found strange contents. Inside was an egg carton with five eggs, and next to the eggs was a stack of bills totaling $10,000. As soon as his wife walked the door, he stopped her and asked her if she knew anything about this odd combination. She said, yes, dear, after we got married, I decided that after every sermon you preached, if it was a bad one, I would put an egg in the shoebox." And the preacher thought with arrogance, of all the years that he'd been married, and there's only five eggs, in the box. And he, he thought beaming, well, honey, there's only five eggs, but what about the $10,000? And she said, well, every time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them. Friends, love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. See, The idea here is being rude or having poor manners. One commentator has written, it's not as serious a fault as bragging or arrogance, but it stems from the same lovelessness. It does not care enough for those that is around to act becomingly or politely. It cares nothing for their feelings or sensitivities. The loveless person is careless, overbearing, and often crude. Love knows how to behave as a gentleman or lady. Not, Not artificial, but love is genuine. Love doesn't speak or act in inappropriate ways. Love is gentle and clean. It's not associated with filth and crudeness. Love does not elbow its way into conversations and, and, and public institutions to be disruptive or discourteous or attention-seeking in any way. Love is not rude. It continues, love does not insist on its own way. Very simply, love is not selfish. Love doesn't pursue its own interests. It does not insist on having its own way. Love doesn't demand to have its own way. Love doesn't demand for its rights. And it's, it's not that rights don't matter. They do. And when one person violates the rights of another, that's injustice and oppression. And But while we, we want to be known as defenders of legitimate rights of others, we aren't supposed to be known as our eagerness to protect our own personal self-exalting rights. Friends, to follow Christ means to see allegiance to him as more significant than any right that we hold to in this life. To be faithful to Christ, we have to give up rights, perhaps even our own right to our lives. And to be a Christian is to recognize that the only thing we have a perfect right to is the wrath of God, and that's not a right that we insist on keeping. So, love does not insist on its own way, and love is not irritable, he says. Literally, this means love does not fly into a rage. And we're told in Scripture that righteous anger is permissible and in certain situations even necessary Jesus expressed anger at the money changers and sellers in the temple but I want to tell you something uh, in case someone said this to you lately you're not Jesus so be careful friends Psalm 4 4 says tremble and do not sin a Puritan once said I'm determined so to be angry as to not sin therefore to be angry with nothing but sin friends love is not irritable love is not provoked love is also not resentful love doesn't keep a list of all wrongs done to them one author put it this way and frankly it couldn't do any better and, and some will quote him he says here is the verbal portrait of a bookkeeper who flips the pages of his ledger to reveal what has been received and spent love bears no resentment love holds no grudges Are you good at keeping a record of the wrongs that have been done to you by others? Or can you absorb it? See, love says we shouldn't be good at at, at bookkeeping here. We need to let go of the list, friends. Don't don't be a proficient bookkeeper of the sins of others. Love is not resentful. In verse 6 there, he says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. See, love isn't happy with the wrongdoing of other people. And it's a nasty characteristic of human nature to take pleasure in the misfortunes of others and the sins of others. Maybe you say, I don't act that way. Maybe you don't display unrighteousness in your speech, but what about your thoughts? Do you rejoice in the truth of what God has said? Do you laugh at others? Do you laugh at other sins? Do you like it on Facebook and share it? Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love expresses itself in truth. It is happy when truth is spoken. Love does not tell lies, it does not cheat or deceive. Love is always characterized by complete integrity. Love rejoices in the truth of, of God and the truth of the gospel. In verse 7, love bears all things. This, this means it covers all things. Peter says in 1 Peter 4a, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. One commentator said, love is the virtue that throws a cloak of silence over what is displeasing in another person. We can be quick to point out the flaws of other people. We fail to cover them. Love calls us to bear all things. Love believes all things. This signifies that a believer has faith in God who will work out his divine plans even when all the indicators on this side of heaven seem to point to a different outcome. We believe, we trust God. Love always believes the best about people, refusing to listen to gossip. Love looks to believe the best instead of the worst. Love hopes all things. Hope is patient, waiting for positive results that'll eventually be realized. Hope is the opposite of pessimism and the definition of healthy optimism. See, pessimism is selfishness, but love is hopeful. And love endures all things. The verb to endure really means perseverance and tenacity in all circumstances. It means to endure in circumstances of pain and suffering or hatred or loss or loneliness. But honestly, endurance is hard, especially when you or your family is in the midst of those tough times. It may seem easier to, to quit or to move on or check out or start over. We, we don't naturally want to be in the, the wine press of life when things aren't going the way we think they should. We, we want to run. But love calls us to endure. Love calls us to persevere, especially when it hurts. So friends, how do we apply this? How do we apply this message? Well, first, the counterfeit of love is is a selfish affection. When you're serving someone or loving someone for what they can give you or how they make you feel about yourself, you're not truly loving them. So look at yourself and your relationships. Are they marked by selfishness or humility? Do you strive to think of others as more important than yourself, as Paul says to Philippians? If not, you will struggle to love other people the way that God instructs us here in this chapter. And friends, if you're struggling to love others, there are two things that you need to do first. First, you need to go to the source of love, go to God himself and ask for divine love to fill you in your responses to people. And second, look at the model of love. Look at the cross of Christ and follow his example. It all comes back to Jesus Christ. All all human love flows from God because God is the source of all true love, since love is his very nature and being. And God is love through and through. God's love is the greatest reality in the universe, even greater than the universe itself. And how do we know that God loves us? Because God the Father gave his only Son, Now the Son willingly gave Himself to save us from eternal death and to give us eternal life. Friends, the cross is the ultimate proof of God's love. The cross is not just means by which we're saved, but also the model on how we're to live now. So when you and I do not love one another, um, it's, it's, it's not just a tragic life, it's a toxic life. John writes in 1 John 4, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So friends, don't look at me as the example and don't look at other Christians as the example. Look to Jesus Christ. And as we learn to love each other well, it will show the world who we belong to. It will point people to Jesus Christ. And what a vital fruit love is here. It's a, it's absolutely first and foremost of the Christian life. When we as Christians love one another, we prove that we've been changed by the love of God. So I will, I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to end this morning with one more song gathered together. So would you join me as I pray? Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word this morning. We long to love you better in our relationships here on earth. Some are difficult. There are many who are struggling even this morning to love those that are closest to them. And I pray, Father, that you would overwhelm them with the cross. May their hearts and minds run to the cross to find their refuge. And would you fill them with love for others? And we praise you, God, for sending Jesus to take our sins upon himself on the cross. How deep is your love for for your friends and our sin that was on Jesus? was given to him on that faithful day to die on the cross for us. It was his love that conquered the grave and the same love that is coming for us one day. Help us to remember Jesus this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.